You're listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back. Today, we've got a panel discussion from the TD Ameritrade National Link Conference. In this episode, previous guests, Sharice Hagen and Kate Healy are joined by Kelly Cruz and Heather Fortner to discuss the evolution of important non-advisor roles in financial planning. Whether you want to learn more about non-advisor careers or learn how to grow your back office team, this episode is a must listen. When you think about the work of financial planners, do you think of words like passion, purpose, and impact? If not, then something just isn't right. I'm Kate Healy, Managing Director of Generation Next at TD Ameritrade and we believe that empowering people to live their best lives is a noble calling. The independent RAAs who work with us use their passion to help transform client lives, communities, and their own futures. Want to learn more about how we can support you in helping your clients reach their financial goals? Find out more at tdainstitutional.com. Now let's jump right in with Sharice. Hi everyone, Uh, my name's Sharice. I'm located in Pittsburgh, PA. I have been running my business for the past two years. I started off as a virtual pair planner, so I contracted with RA firms like across the country on a virtual basis. Um, Basically, like after five or six firms, a lot of advisors started asking me about best practices to run their firm. So now 90% of my business is based off of operations consulting. What that entails is just basically technology integration, building out, building out processes and procedures for uh, firms. So one of my uh, biggest packages I do is like basically building out the first year client experience. So I'll work with the advisors and their team members and we will build out like from the prospect workflow, client onboarding workflow, like into the financial planning topics. And it goes a lot further than that. Like I also implement uh, the workflows, the processes, the procedures, and um, with technology integration as well. So if you have processes in place, I'll take a look at them and then identify opportunities, weaknesses, and strengths for, of your procedures. Great, thank you. Kelly? Hi, I'm Kelly Cruz, and I'm really excited to be here today. And I think I have a couple clients I can refer to you. How's that? (laughs) We're already networking here. Um, This is a great topic today, and I'm hoping through the collaboration with the conversation today, you'll walk away with some good tips about either for yourself, if it's your career as as someone on the administrative and ops side, or for a team that you're developing. And I work directly, Cruise Consulting Group works directly with... um, firms to help them around their talent management. So we're not a search firm, but we do help with mapping out the roadmap of who to hire, uh, what to do when you onboard them, what the compensation structures should look like. And we work a lot with firms around succession, internal succession planning uh, to partner. So it's just my passion to make sure that we aren't forgetting the most, in my opinion, one of the most important parts of running your business is the operation, the day-to-day running of the business. And as firms get bigger, um, it's interesting because things get more complex, but that structure of how the work gets done and and sort of that behind the scenes, uh, all that process becomes really critical to the success and growth. So, so many times in our industry, we talk about the advisor track, we talk about the advisors, and in most cases, the owners that are heading up firms you know, our, our advisors themselves. So there's some mystery to this operations side of the business. 
So I'm really super excited to be here today to, to have this conversation. Thank Great, thank you. Heather? Hi, I'm Heather Fortner with Signature FD in Atlanta. We are a financial design firm. We're about 2.8 billion and we have about 70 uh, team members currently. And I um, kind of grew up in the organization and in the mystery of operations. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. So I'm going I'm to actually start with you because you've got a great story that talks about your career journey as a non-advisor because you actually started that way. So talk to us a little bit about that and were there other, you know, when you got into their firm, were there other managerial professionals that you could follow or were you blazing a trail? Yeah, so uh, I would not say that my career was strategic by any means. I uh, got an undergrad in finance and really had no idea what I wanted to do with that as the obviously financial services industry is extremely large. Uh, my investment professor at the time said, hey, you know, I'm sitting on the board of a mutual fund. You should go intern at this firm. So I did. Uh, they were a wealth management firm. So I spent about two years doing technical financial planning for them, uh, running the cash flows, literally just learning how to do uh, you know, financial planning from the technical standpoint, how to interact with the clients. Um, at that time, they wanted to start a trust company and they said, hey, there's an opportunity. Would you like to go help build this business? And I thought, sure, that sounds great. This could be really exciting. Um, so I did that, went and worked uh, to build this company for about two years and then realized that the back office of a bank has a little bit of a different feel than uh, doing financial planning with individual clients and I much preferred uh, the latter. So I found, uh, we were F&D advisors at the time. Uh, over those four years I would say that you kind of learn what, you, what you're good at and what you're not good at. And um, I definitely have an operational skill set, the ability to um, see systems and see inefficiencies, pull them apart and put them back together in a more efficient way. So when I started at, at Signature FD, uh, I was a client care associate. Um, and our motto there has always been get in, learn it, master it, train someone else to do it, and then the next opportunity will be available to you. Uh, and that really was the, the impetus for my career there. It was a very young firm when I started, the three founding partners, I'm looking at one of them uh, in the room today, um, you know, were, were entrepreneurs, and they still are. And the fabulous part of that was there was always something that they needed to shed because they were always doing something else. And so I was that super annoying person uh, that was like, hey, I mastered this. Can I, can I try this? Can I try that? And our firm was, uh, I was just very fortunate. We have an insurance agency or a mortgage broker as well. And so there was always something new to learn. Uh, and so I just helped out where I could over the years. And I'll never forget it. I, I, I laugh about it all the time. Uh, at, at one point, I, I think I'd been there couple months, literally wrote a job description for the COO position and took it in to one of the founding partners and was like, this is the job I would like. And he looked at me and he was like, that's my job. I was like, I know. <laughs> that's the job I want. And so 
um, from there it was, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily, there was no career track in place. There was no management structure of, of you know, these positions are available for you. It was literally a, uh, a negotiation and a get in there and figure it out learn what you're good at, where you add value, how you can help grow the business, how you can help the founders become their best people. Um, and, and that's where we are today. Sharice, you started out in a large firm. So talk about what happened and why you left that firm. So before I started my business, I worked at uh, two different firms. The first one it, they had two billion in assets and there were about 50 employees. And I was recruited uh, while I was in college getting a degree in finance, a CFP track focus. When I worked there, I worked directly with one of the senior lead advisors, very closely with her. I attended client meetings. I um, used Money Guy Pro, so I built out planned deliverables and I also became familiar with the custodians. About a year into the job, she parted ways with the company, so I moved on to another firm because I feel like I lost mentorship with her. They had two locations. They moved me into a smaller office, and I just really didn't fit in with the office culture. So at the second firm I went to, surprisingly, thinking about everything I just told you, they actually didn't allow me to attend client meetings anymore because I didn't have the CFP designation and also they didn't have uh, financial planning software. So with their financial plan deliverables, they actually built it out in Lotus. And if you're not familiar with Lotus, that is Excel That's before Excel existed. <laughs> so I spent most of my time with data entry and I felt like I took a step back. It was like a joke in the office, like Sharice got a demotion coming here. So after that, I was like, if I keep going from job to job, I'm just gonna end up in the same situation. So I called about 50 to 75 advisors, asking them if they wanted a virtual paraplanner on their staff. Three of them got back to me. One ended up hiring me, and she was my biggest client for the first year and a half I was doing this, and then one said follow up with me in a few months, and the last person said no. And over this two-year span, I've worked with 20 firms, so I'm actually really happy that I decided to pursue this opportunity. So when it comes down to not having a mentor, I work with so many advisors. I have numerous options now, and also I can pick and choose the job I want. That's awesome. So you've created your own career path. Mm -hmm. That's great. So Kelly, your background, you've got a lot of background in human resources and consulting. Um, are career paths important for all roles or just advisory roles? I think they are. I'm actually an example of somebody who never really had a career track either. I kind of just made my own way. So the first 15 years of my career were at Wells Fargo where things were evolving and changing and there was always some opportunity to sort of say, hey, I can do that and take on more responsibility. But I feel in the work I'm doing today with advisory firms, especially as we look at the newer generation coming in now, the newer generations, um, it's important because people really are looking. If you look at any of the studies, they tell you people are looking for opportunity. They want to feel like they're contributing. They want to feel like they're, they're part of the success of the firm. And they want to understand how they can grow in their careers. 
and grow with their skills, how, you know, what do they need to do next? And so putting a framework or a, a path in place, a progression as you look at the roles in your firm becomes really important because today's job seeker is gonna require it. And if you're smart about the number one asset you have is talent, why wouldn't you wanna you know, purposefully in, in a really um, organized manner uh, help people grow in their careers? Um, fortunately, the industry doesn't really um, have a turnover issue. So if you have turnover in your firm, that's, that's a little unusual and you should really take a good hard look at that. Um, so the fact that people have been able to evolve in their jobs and they find this work really meaningful is great. But as we're evolving as an industry and as I mentioned, newer job entrants are coming in, I think it's time to really put more process in place for everybody. And it doesn't mean that everybody wants to have your job if you're the founder owner. They just want to know, you know, what do I need to do to get ahead? So when I work with firms, I always interview all the employees. And I ask questions about, you know, how are they contributing? How do they get job satisfaction? And folks just want to know where they fit in, in that org structure. You know, and if you don't have job descriptions and you don't have things kind of more mapped out, um, people can tend to just sort of float and think they're doing a good job, you know, have well, their intent is, you know, every day is to do a great job, but without having it more mapped out, um, I think it gets, it gets trickier. And you can probably handle it when you have two or three employees, but it's 70 employees. If you don't have this all mapped out, it's, <laughs> it could be chaos. So I tend to see folks start to really pay attention when they've got four or five employees, and all of a sudden, you know, we've got to have we've got to have a roadmap for this. So it's super important. And again, it doesn't mean that everybody wants to move up hierarchically. It's more around well, what are the components? You know, how is the job going to change? What are the skills and credentials, education that I need? What are the core competencies? In other words, what do I need to be doing better? And then what's the feedback mechanism? Probably more important than anything else is. What does that feedback mechanism look like to tell people how they're doing on a path? And it can be very informal, it can be more formalized depending on the culture um, of your firm, but I think, it's, I think it's essential for everybody. I fully agree, and, and I, I believe that it gets extremely difficult for the organization to um, tell and, and coach properly and mentor people properly and reward people properly if, if you have nothing to measure it against. You know, it, it's kind of like, let me lick my thumb and stick it in the air and tell you if I think you're doing a good job. Um, nobody really wants to be measured that way. And so I don't want to be measured, don't want to be measured that way. So <laughs> I, I think it's important not only from a talent acquisition standpoint, because yes, I agree with you that the market that we are looking at right now is so tight um, and you're competing with well-established firms, mm -hmm. uh, big firms that have a lot of resources poured into human resources and human capital and talent acquisition. Um, I, I think that's a no-brainer, but, but then from your standpoint as well, how are you measuring uh, the ROI that you're getting on the dollars you're spending on your talent. And, and if you don't 
lay out your expectations clearly for people, then you really have no recourse to come back and say, but you aren't meeting my expectations. Where are we going to go from there? So I think it's good protection for the business as well. That sounds great. Um, Sharice, I want to switch a little bit. So we're talking a little bit about career paths, and I want to dive a little bit more into that. But is everyone's end goal to be a financial advisor? So I feel like that's where a lot of firms get to. Um, and we'll talk about this, but a lot of firms are in that first generation. So the only job that the advisor has known is the advisor job. So when they create a career path, they kind of create their own career path. But you've talked about, you know, not everyone wants to be a financial advisor. Yeah, I would say up until today, that has been my end goal to be an advisor. But over the past year, that has changed. And I have a, people by the dozen reach out to me asking, how did I create my business? So a lot of people are happy with what they're doing, but they're just not happy within their firm doing it. So, for example, like a woman reached out to me and she loves helping advisors. She loves supporting advisors. She loves the client service aspect of the business, but she doesn't feel fulfilled at her current firm. So a lot of people are shifting the mindset. A lot of firms think the only way to own a business is to be an advisor, but some people want to support advisors and create that business model like I did. I, paraplanning is supporting an advisor. I was able to live comfortably off of that income. So I think that's one way to think about things. And then also making sure there is a path for the people who don't want to be an advisor. I think that's important. Um, Heather, can you talk about different ways to motivate employees who don't have that revenue generating role, the classic advisor role that generates revenue. Is there a different model or compensation model, career path that they should be thinking about, that advisors should think about? You know, I, I think that's an interesting question. I don't believe that compensation motivates everybody. I, I think compensation is a core component of human capital. I think it is a core component of any business, but I know a ton of people who would do what they do without getting paid because they are in their sweet spot. And so I talk a lot about uh, when I'm coaching people, developing people, and please understand my perspective is a little different. Yes, my undergrad's in finance, but I did go get a master's in professional counseling. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of on the, I look at things a little differently. Um, I, I believe wholeheartedly that people have a unique skill set. You are, you are made with a unique skill set. And then you have what you're passionate about, right? And if you can find where your talent and your passions, your skill set and your passions overlap, that's kind of your sweet spot, right? And that's really where you are operating. If you're operating in that little area, uh, you pretty much are gonna do it regardless of whether or not you get paid because it's who you are, it's what you love. Um, and so I, I yes, I think, I think smart compensation plans that reward the behavior that you're looking for uh, out of your team members is critical. I don't think it's the only thing that motivates people. I think uh, good coaching motivates people. I think um, opportunity motivates people. Autonomy motivates people. An extremely strong culture with amazing benefits. Uh, one of the things that we do for our team members is after five years of service, they get a five-week paid sabbatical. You would not believe how awesome people think that is. The ability to work from home. Because it is awesome. <laughs> right? The ability to work from home one day a week. Um, 
you know, unlimited vacation time. You know, we don't track it. There is no PTO bank. It's like, if you need time off, take time off. Like, truly creating the culture of a place where you want to live, I believe, is as much uh, of an incentive to people, whether they're advisor or non-advisor track, uh, as compensation is. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Kelly, you work with a ton of advisory firms. Some of them don't yet know that they need help or they're not sure how to go about getting and hiring that help. Do they have the same, um, do they find people with the same sense of passion or ownership as they had? Is that a sticking point when they're looking to hire non-advisory talent for their firms? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. I just want to go back and say I agree exactly with what you were saying about compensation. And I don't I don't think your comp structure has to be materially different for your ops and your um, advisory or your non-advisory team. As a matter of fact, we build one plan that is there's different drivers of it depending on your role. Um, I think to your question about you know do you know you need the help or not. Generally, I'll get calls and it'll be that the advisors are overwhelmed and they're, you know, you're all really smart people and you know you need help and they're not quite sure the role. So the CSA role, the client service administrator role, admin assistant roles are pretty typical and customary and those are those are ones that just about everybody gets you need, right? But as the firm gets bigger and you want to move to having uh, more specialized roles, meaning instead of someone wearing many hats and being sort of that, um, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, uh, that gets hard to leverage and build capacity. So as firms get bigger, it, it becomes important to specialize roles and really figure out, well, what is the right mix? Um, and, and truly the guiding principle is, you know, anything that, you mentioned this, anything that you can do to free up your time for your advisory team and delegate that or outsource it or find a technology solution is going to create that capacity and leverage. Um, and understanding that back to, you know, people having the same passion as an owner, that's really, really hard to find. And I, I sometimes hear the frustration in the voices of my clients when they hire you know, new folks to come in, and then they're like, well, they're not hungry like we were, and they don't have that same drive. Well, of course not. If they were entrepreneurs and wanted to start their own business, they wouldn't be working for you. So what I, what I encourage you to think about is, is you're hiring the next generation, uh, the second and third generations of your, of your talent pool. Um, keep in mind that folks are joining you because you've built something that is very appealing to them. And I do agree, in our industry, we're really fortunate that people do this work because they find so much satisfaction in it. So I say to my clients, you know, to me, um, there's nothing more important than your health and your financial fitness. And if you don't have the combination of those two things, life is really tough. And I feel really blessed to be able to work with all of you because I'm not an advisor, but I feel like the work you do is as important as the work the medical profession does because without these two things, we can't tick. But when I go into my doctor's office, 
the person that probably I connect with the most is the person that greets me and helps me with my paperwork. And God knows all the insurance, you know, situations you have going on. And the person that takes my temperature, you know, the nurse practitioner. It takes a village. And, and it's so important that when you hire people to explain the culture, to make sure that you understand they're joining something that exists and they want to add value. They aren't necessarily the one that wants to take over and do everything the same way the owner did it. And most of you are smart enough to know that you know what got you to the point of success you're at isn't what's going to propel you into the future. It's going to take people who have different skill sets, different passions, and contributing in a, in a different way. And revenue is not always the way to measure contribution. I'm, I'm sure you find that, Heather like, and I've had firm. that conversation many times. <laughs> yeah, it's contribution is value. Right. Um, the, the non-advisory track, those roles are contributing by reducing your expenses, you know, increasing productivity, workflows. Um, finding better ways to do things, saving time, all of that does translate to the bottom line. And believe it or not, all of that can be tracked in some way back to how you comp and incent people. So, um, you know, it's a great business model, but you have to sometimes stretch yourself to think beyond just the revenue because uh, you've got people contributing in, in ways that are adding just as much value. I think there's a, a I 100% agree with all of that. I, we have a, a program internally for our comp um, that everyone in the firm is able to generate business. So even the non-advisor, you know, if you're on the investment team or you're you're the director of due diligence or you're a client care associate, you have the same opportunity for incentive, rev, you know, uh, financial incentive if you bring business to the firm as anyone else does. So I think that that, you know, is a, a fantastic way as well to kind of, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, if you have people you want to help, we have an insurance agency. You, you can, you know, help someone with their property and casualty insurance. Just, um, it, it doesn't matter whether you're non-revenue producing, and I hate that term, right? It's like, don't call me a non-revenue producing person. I create value. Like, <laughs> Right, exactly. Value creation. I like that. that. It's value creation, and it does take a village. Right. I wanted to add something yeah. to that. Also, like, when you hire someone, like, show them a timeline. So, like, the position may be good now, but in five years, like, where do you really want them to be? And then also giving the non-advisors the resources to be successful, to help lower cost, that's important as well. I talk to a lot of people who their advisors don't even allow them to sit in on advocacy calls during um, work day, the workday, and then also coming to conferences to meet people and to network. So those best practices are created and then they can bring it back into the firm. That's great. So Sharice, you work with a lot of firms virtually. How have you helped advisors see the benefits and what are the, some of the advantages you have to working virtually and, and what are the challenges there? I don't really have to sell the virtual aspect of the business. Even if you are working in an office, sometimes people can't come in. So a lot of advisors want to learn like about the web-based um, like softwares like ShareFile. For example, I was working with one, one firm. They had tw a team of 12 and they were all in the office, but when they hired me, I didn't have access to any of their files. 
So that's something that they had the hurdle for them to go virtual to have outsourced work. Another benefit, you're not limited to local talent. You'll have the world's talent at your hand if you're open to becoming a virtual firm. There's a lot of opportunity with someone like myself. I did start out as a contractor, so when you do hire an outsourced person, you are going to have someone that that's exposed to numerous ways of presenting plans, building out workflows, and then also mastering even paperwork. There's people who have that service as an option. So I would say some of the challenges are communication. When I work with firms who aren't used to the virtual aspect, they usually forget about me. So if you are considering working virtually with any team, team member, I would recommend setting up a recurring weekly call, depending on how close you work with that person. And then also discipline, but that's just any business owner. Like you have to be responsible, you work from home, you can get sidetracked, so. That's great. How do firms know that they need you? What's their tipping point to say, I need help? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so a lot of advisors reach out to me when they just get nervous about getting a new client. I usually work with smaller firms. So I work with six firms right now, and most of them are career changers. So they just are concerned that they're not servicing their clients to the best of their ability. Or if the technology becomes a frustration, so they'll hire me to help with streamlining that process and providing clarity. So for example, I'm working with one advisor. She has been working alone for the past eight years and she added an assistant and she's afraid to give her work and she doesn't know what she should be giving her and what she shouldn't. So along this process, I actually helped her realize that she needs a middle person, a pair planner, because her assistant was in Money Guy Pro and she was really confused about what she should be doing in that software. So what I do, like I'll build out a diagram for roles and responsibilities. So we'll go through like a workflow, like a client onboarding workflow. Usually that's the client service person. And I'll show the advisor, look, you're doing all of this work and there's someone you could hire to do that for you so you can focus on building your business. So basically I would say the value I add is just making sure we're maximizing on technology, we're streamlining processes, and then identifying what work you shouldn't be doing. Thank you, that's great. Yeah. Kelly, I know you've talked about there's like a, a, um, a capacity that firms get at where they should think ahead, not when they're overwhelmed. Right, yeah, so the rule of thumb is that I like to recommend. When you're at 80% of capacity, you should already be well into the recruiting phase. Um, so I know that's probably a shock to hear. Um, <laughs> most folks realize we're overwhelmed, we have you know, too much work, and then start recruiting, because it will take you some time. The job market in most regional areas right now is competitive. I work out of the San Francisco Bay Area, but I have clients all over the US, and I don't have any clients right now that tell me it's easy to find people especially, we're talking non-advisory track today, especially the administrative operations. These are really tough positions because if you have to hire someone who has no experience, you, to your point about onboarding, you really need to be able to figure out how you're gonna get them up to speed. And if you're already at capacity, you could end up hiring someone who nobody has any time to train. And then I think you need to call. 
ways to pass that. Sharice, if that's the situation, but um, thankfully there's there's a solution there. But it does require you to to think ahead, and that career track on the operational side, you know, why you're going to end up with a career track at some point is you're really going to need a dedicated management role. And I would venture to guess, not knowing your whole history, Heather, but I would imagine that was when the light bulb, like you were helping with all of the management stuff that the advisors just didn't have time to take care of. Um, and that's usually when a firm reaches one to two million in revenue. That's when you can really afford that dedicated management role that isn't tied to revenue. There we go again. Um, but it's, it's, and I call it that intermediary. So it's that person who plays the role between, you know, that advisory client facing team and the, what I like to call the actual running of the business, the running of day to day, the operations of, of how work actually gets done. Um, so I feel like it, and it's, I know I have a small business myself. It's a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. when you think about adding someone, right? Because that comes out of, as the, as the owners of the firm anyway, if there's any in the room today, that comes out of your pocket, the owner's pocket. So understanding what the capacity and productivity you're gonna get out of that hire is, is really important. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like if you, can, if you can get a handle on capacity, and if you can't, if you're sitting here feeling very overwhelmed right now. If you're not sure how people are spending their time and what they're doing, have them time track. Now this is not the most um, favorable suggestion <laughs> I'm ever gonna make. It, it can be perceived pretty unfairly, uh, or um, unfavorably I should say, but it's a way to figure out what, how much time people are spending, not because you wanna get rid of them, but because you wanna understand if we're gonna make that investment in hiring someone what's the right role and what's the right set of you know, um, skills that we need as well. And so having people actually track their time and what they're spending time doing and doing that for, you know, I would say at least a month, if you, if you can get it even for a quarter, will really help you understand um, where your staffing could be, could be lacking, where, where you have a gap in the process or where you need additional help, and I don't know if, if you have suggestions or think that's a great idea, but um, it's a way to get a handle on, you know, mm -hmm. what, are we, what are we hiring for next? Because so many times what happens in the interviewing process is you meet someone, you sort of fall in love, right? It's a little bit like dating, and then you think, well, this is a really talented person. I know that they will add value, so I'm gonna bring them in and I'm gonna create a job around them. Now, although that is such a great idea, I've rarely seen that turn out successfully, and it's kind of a recipe for disaster if that's your hiring plan. If your hiring plan is, I'm gonna go out and people that I think are really impressive and have some really great skills, and we'll just figure out a job for them, that is gonna be painful. You're gonna hit some bumps in the road with that. Yeah, it sounds like the messaging also and that whole process is pretty important. And I think it, you can message it well, right? You are looking to get resources for the firm, figure out strategically where you need to go. And the time study can be an important component of that. But the messaging can be very important there because that can be perceived in a bad way. But if you tell people we're doing this so we can figure out what's the next right resource we mm -hmm. hire and get people to, you know, they can certainly help you figure that out. 
Um, one of the things to do if you don't have job descriptions is ask everybody to write down you know, how they spend their time, what percentage of time, if you don't want to do the time tracking, you know, just estimate how much time you're spending on the paperwork versus, you know, uh, reconciliation or, you know, whatever it might be. So you can then figure out, okay, what's the right resource if we're going to move forward and hire. So Heather, you wear a lot of hats in your firm. <laughs> how important is succession planning? Um, it's critical. So I've got so many things rolling around in my noggin at the minute. Um, I, I could talk about this, this stuff for hours. I think succession planning, planning is absolutely critical. So um, chief compliance officer, chief operating officer, uh, whether it's a founder who you know, is splitting their time between clients, creating vision for the business, um, you know, trying to develop the client experience process that, that everybody wants or manage the investment team and the investments or, you know, you just wear so many hats and at some point you realize that if, if literally if something happened to you, and I think this was a, a, an aha moment for me, uh, there are four of us on the leadership team, the three founders and myself, and we all actually went to different conferences in the same area on different days and all ended up on the same flight home. And had no, I, I had no idea we were all on the same flight home and, and it dawned on me, it was like, wow, that was stupid, right? <laughs> I mean, same thing you would think if you and your husband are traveling together and you got small kids, right? Um, that transfer of knowledge, that transfer of passion, that transfer of Man, if something were to happen, like who who is going to step into this role? That doesn't happen overnight. You know, I, I've been there 15 years, and, and I, I just now kind of feel like I'm getting my arms around it all. Um, I understand. You spoke earlier of, about the fear as founders of your firms. It is extremely difficult to not only find people that uh, you trust. Um, but quite honestly, I'm not sure that we as an industry training talent coming into this industry and, and uh, have done a great job of helping the, the new people understand the respect that they need to have for the fact of what these founders have built and that you don't walk in day one and get that trust. You know, like you have to earn that trust. You have to earn, you do have to operate like you are an owner and you have to feel that sense of responsibility and you have to put in the blood, sweat and tears uh, to, to earn the trust and the right to make those decisions and to add that value and to be at the table. And I think it's a two-way street that, that we as an industry need to help the the younger generation coming in recognize that and respect that, but also I will tell you that from a from a succession planning point, uh, literally a conversation I had with one of our uh, founders the other day was, and and I'll tell you, uh, you know he is he is mentoring me hard on how to make very large decisions and be confident in those decisions. And so I went home and I mean, I thought about it, thought about it, put together, you know what, this is my decision, here's why. And I believe that I deserve the right at this point to make this decision and fail 
if I do. And at some point as founders, we have to make that, we, we have to let go just enough. Like it, it's not gonna ruin the firm if I hire the wrong person. You know, it, it can have large consequences, right? And it can cost money and it can cost time and it can cost culture. Um, but at some point that, that finding the right person, giving them the right opportunity, uh, and then allowing them to either succeed or fail in some of their own decisions is critical. I think that's great. So I'm going to ask a question of all of the panelists. Well, I just want to let the audience know to be thinking of questions, and I'll open it up. There are two mics, so if you've got questions, just um, stand up to one of the mics, and we'll we'll uh, we'll get you. So while folks are thinking of their questions, um, this is for anyone or everyone. What are the kinds of questions that advisors should be asking themselves before they hire non-advisor talent? to make it really successful for them. We'll start. <laughs> well, I'm gonna go back a little bit. One of the things that I think is really important in the recruiting process is to really understand your culture and make sure, you mentioned this in, I think, some of your first remarks, that culture match, or maybe both of you did as well. That culture match and matching with the culture is really important. So it's the traits, the characteristics that make up what it's like to work at your firm and what's the atmosphere like and the environment like. Those are things that you can't teach someone. So you can teach someone how to write a really great financial plan and use you know, whatever software you're, you're using or process that you use. What you can't teach someone is how to be collaborative or team oriented or how to work with integrity and strong ethics, mm -hmm. how to be trustworthy. There's certain things, so I, I encourage you to define that if you already aren't, and then make sure you're recruiting for any position in your firm, that you're matching those, those traits and characteristics. Then I like to say, go for what are the core competencies that you need in the role? So when you think about those really great support people on your team, what are some of those core characteristics that they all share? I'm pretty sure they're gonna have attention to detail, they're really organized, they're analytical, they can create a process out of chaos, whatever those things are, and make sure that you're asking questions and, and that's what you're trying to get at, at that in that process. Because otherwise, you're gonna end up maybe hiring someone, but they, they, they may not be a fit with the firm culture or with those traits and characteristics of someone who's really successful in the role that, that you're recruiting for. So a long-winded answer, but I think you, you have to be very uh, purposeful and go into the recruiting process with a set of questions that, that you need to, to get the answers to. And it may take several different you know, attempts at getting people to answer questions to get the kind of answer that satisfies you. Yeah, I would say from there, just making sure you have the time to train the person. They're not going to be able to walk in on day one and do everything you need. And again, like I said, building out that timeline provides a lot of clarity for the person you're hiring and also yourself. That's great. Does anyone in the audience have any questions? Because I've got more. All right, we've got one right here. Or yeah, There's a mic right behind you, actually. Thank you. 
Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks. This has been very good. Um, we have a smaller firm. There are four people in the office. Three of them are family um, and one support person. So one of the things I looked for when I hired her was being able to know when to raise her head out of the foxhole and know when to talk and when not to talk. She's very good at that. Now we're reaching the three-year crest with her. And I want to make sure that she doesn't feel like she's got no future beyond where she is. But because it's only a four-person entity, it's difficult to see what would be the advancement from where she is now. So that's a question. And what she, what is she, she's client service? Client service. Um, she interfaces with TD Ameritrade. She deals with billing. Um, clients need money. She sends them money. Um, she's kind of, uh, how shall I say it? She's basically kind of the, the warm fuzzy of the firm uh, to make sure that somebody's always there, somebody's always answering the phone. And she's good. Um, we've been very happy with her. And is your firm growing? I mean, uh, the firm's growing. So, yeah. I mean, part of that would be as the firm grows, what else can you delegate to her? What right. can you get off your plate? And then what can she free of? And maybe you bring someone in under her. And then the other thing I would say is ask her. She probably has more in her mind. You know, what are the things either that she's passionate about, she loves doing, the things she, you know, puts to the bottom of the list and hates doing, mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of work maybe off a list like that. Okay, thank you very much. Sure. Right. Do you have a question here? Go ahead. Very, very, very similar question, but um, looking for kind of more specific examples. Uh, we're a little bit larger, but not large, uh, about 11 people. We, we have gone that step of getting um, a uh, operations uh, manager type of person. But uh, when you have the person who is primarily administrative paperwork and they're doing a great job, but where do you tell them since they don't have an opportunity to take the person above their job, what are specific uh, roles that they can step up to or you can create as that path to say here's the next step that what you can do if you achieve something. Do you want to take that or? Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I have a framework and I'm happy to share that if anyone wants to email me, I can, I can send it to you. So it's Kelly with an I at cruiseconsultinggroup.com. But what, what I would suggest doing is creating a framework of, um, are, is, are there additional skills and knowledge that the person needs to be able to take on more and, and figure out what that is. Is it compliance related? Is it technology related? Uh, you know, with software? Um, is it doing maybe some of the um, planning work for, for clients or client meeting prep? Um, again, figure out from a delegation standpoint, what can you start to push down that this person can take on? Um, but then I would create, you know, is it time and job? Is it performance? Is it, you know, can you set some, some goals for, you know, three months, six months, a year? Are there some classes this person could be taking to increase their knowledge? Do you have any key initiatives for the firm looking out the next 18 to 24 months where you're like, 
weeks, who's going to do that? You know, maybe the website needs to be updated, you know, who knows what it might be, but try to think out strategically and then where this person could fit in with, you know, capacity, skill set, and, and an interest that they may have in doing those things. I think the big area for, for our industry is in technology. And, you know, some of you maybe have done better than others. Some may be avoiding it like the plague. Your custodian is definitely, I mean, TD is a great partner around that. But there's so much there. Cybersecurity, I mean, we could just tick down the list. The new tax reform, God knows what that's going to do, right, with some of your clients. So there could be special project work researching some of these issues, some of these things, the technology, whatever, that could be part of this person just gaining more um, experience and adding more, you know, overall to the success of the firm. So it doesn't have to necessarily be what's the next job title. It would be more about what responsibilities or areas of responsibility could we could we add to the job. I, I would add two things to that. So one is I'm a huge believer in that uh, people need to take initiative as well. Right? So you're spending a lot of energy and time thinking about her career. Is she spending as much time? Anybody, right? Like maybe she needs to take some initiative and maybe if you pose an open-ended question uh, around, you know, I, I would like to be able to provide opportunity to you. Where do you think you might like to, I, I think maybe you would get some interesting answers to that. I think the second thing around that is to think about it from your perspective of what can you not get to that you want to get to uh, and is it appropriate for her or anyone else in your organization? So are there things that you would like to be doing uh, that you need support or help or capacity for um, that you can utilize additional resources or capacity that's already within the organization to help you with? Right. One last question. Yeah, so it sounds like you guys are advocating for this notion of career pathing, um, but I find it odd that you have three very successful panelists who, by their own admission, are products of kind of not having a predefined career path. And I have to wonder if the most talented people are those who feel like um, they have the flexibility to kind of blaze their own trail. Do you think there's some risk that uh, through career pathing um, a firm might pigeonhole an employee into um, maybe feeling like they don't have the flexibility uh, to kind of change a career path as they get further down the line and that there could be some risk of uh, losing talent. And also I wonder if uh, from an employer standpoint, firms might uh, pass up some very talented people who kind of don't fit the mold. Yeah, so I think that's a fantastic observation. Um, I, I have a couple of thoughts around that. Do I think you run the risk of pigeonholing people? I think people run the risk of getting pigeonholed no matter what, right? I, I think that that is more a mechanism of uh, unskilled management and unskilled leadership uh, than it is someone being really good at what they do. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that um, good talent given space and good leadership will grow into something amazing. 
Um, I, you know, was the, was the job there before I got there? Probably not, but we were five or six people, right? So that, that speaks more, I think, to just the evolution of where the firm was. Um, I, you know, we haven't talked at all about what the career path actually looks like, but, but across our organization, whether it's investments, whether it's planning, whether it's client care, whether it's business operations, fundamentally it looks the same, right? At level one, you're learning technical skill, just technical skill in whatever area you're in. At level two, you're starting to build the relational skill. How do you interact with people? How do you interact with clients? How do you interact with vendors? How do you interact with people? At level three, you should be learning how to lead. You should be learning uh, how to coach people, how to develop other talent. And then at the director level, you should be managing people. You should be managing a team. And it's our job as leadership to ensure that regardless of what area of the firm you're in, if, if a very talented, I've got one right now, a, a client care associate has come in at level one, knew nothing, has really done well, decided, you know what, I, I, would really, I really want the client interface, getting their CFP, they will then become you know, level one planner. That, like, that is, to me, to us, it's, it's do you fit culturally? Get in here and we're gonna find the right place for you. But that is because we are dedicated and believe passionately in the, the professional development of people, coaching, mentoring, sponsoring people, and getting them in that sweet spot. I don't care if your sweet spot is over on the planning side or the investment side. We've got one uh, investment person, she came in as a level one investment. She got in, built new technologies. She's a CFA for crying out loud. She is now our director of client technology strategy how to, to fold in technology with the client experience uh, because that's where her passion was. Would not have ever thought when she came in as a, a level one investment analyst with a CFA that that's where she ended up. That, I believe, is the genius of, of having ways for people to progress, providing good leadership, good coaching, good professional development, and space for people to find that sweet spot and then plug in because that truly to me is what adds immense value to the firm. And I think it's important. I know we're running out of time. We're actually out of time. We're over time, but it's having the conversation, right? Career pathing is important, but it's not the be all and end all. There's gotta be some flexibility, but it's the conversation and the associate and you as the firm owner need to take responsibility for having those conversations to make sure that you are developing your team. So I think that's really important. Um, ladies, thank you so much. This was a fantastic panel. I feel like we thank could you. be here for another two hours. Thank you. How is your work connecting you to your purpose, your community, and your values? I'm Kate Healy, Managing Director of Generation Next at TD Ameritrade. And we believe that independent registered investment advisors have the power to impact the world in profound ways. If you've never considered being an RAA, it's time to take a look. There's no better way to put your skills and knowledge to work for the greater good of your clients, your community, and your own future. Find out more at tdainstitutional.com.
If you want to be a part of great conversations like these, be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and FPA board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.